It's time for the July 28, 2023 edition of Weekly Signals Weekly Review, a personal recollection of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting on National Talk in an Elevator Day from the University of California at Irvine on KUCI 88.9 FM. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Caspar. And, as always, the answer to all your prayers, Mahler, the fake news dog. Mahler, the fake news dog. There he Thank is. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> he was... Mahler. He's looking at the squirrel on the fence. I know. We went over this in, yeah. in rehearsal. But right. he was distracted, Mike. All right. He was distracted by a squirrel. So was I. By a squirrel? No. You're not a dog. No, either. but I am distracted. <laughs> he's he's just yeah. a dog. He's, I know. he's not very intelligent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Today, we'll be talking about hubris syndrome, self-healing metal, unidentified aerial phenomena. Sounds like a circus act, doesn't it? <laughs> UFOs had gravitas. Yeah. Yeah. Unidentified. UAP sounds like, you know, what you get to heal your gums or something. <laughs> I don't know. Pickleball Gandhi and so much more. But first, do you ever feel self-destructive, Mike? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> so matter of fact, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, find the, I fight the impulse every morning. Are you kidding? From um, Nature Magazine, yeah. researchers at Stanford University devised a strange new molecule that could lead to drugs that make cancers work against themselves. Ooh. Just like you. Yeah. Within every cancer cell are molecules that spur deadly, uncontrollable growth. But what if scientists could engineer those molecules to other molecules that make cells self-destruct? You know, engineer. Yeah. Combine those molecules. That makes sense. Could we turn cancer against itself? I think we could. Well, Dr. Gerald Crabtree agrees with you. He's a developmental biologist at Stanford, and he reported this week that researchers have done just that. In laboratory experiments with cells from a blood cancer, the researchers designed and built molecules that hook together two proteins, BCL6, a mutated protein that the cancer relies on to aggressively grow and survive, and a normal cell protein that switches on any genes it gets near. The new construction, a dumbbell-shaped molecule, guides the molecule towards cell death genes that are part of every cell's DNA and are usually used to get rid of cells that are no longer needed. But in this case, they get rid of the cell death genes. Nice. So cancer yeah. working against itself. Yeah, very nice. The concept is a long way from a drug that could be given to cancer patients, but in the future it could potentially work for half of all cancers. Wow which have known mutations that result in proteins that drive growth that wow. match up to this formula here. And because the treatment relies on the mutated proteins produced by the cancer cells, it could be extremely specific, sparing healthy cells. Very good. So it's, it it's almost so, seems like just desserts for cancer. Yeah. Yeah. You've been messing with us for this long, and now we're introducing the suicide pact yeah. to the cell world. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. From The Guardian, 
The most comprehensive analysis to date has concluded that eating a vegan diet massively reduces the damage to the environment caused by food production. We've been talking about this for a long time. For a long time. But this research showed that vegan diets resulted in 75% less climate heating emissions, water pollution, and land use than diets where more than 100 grams of meat a day was eaten. Yeah. Now, 100 grams of meat is 3.5 ounces. So that's less than a quarter pound. Mm -hmm. That's not much meat. No. Vegan diets also cut the destruction of wildlife by 66% and water use by 54%, the study found. Previous studies have used model diets and average values for the impact of each food type. In contrast, the new study analyzed the real diets of 55,000 people in the UK. Real people, not this model. And it also used data from 38,000 farms in 119 countries to account for differences in the impact of particular foods that are produced in different ways and places. This significantly strengthens confidence in the conclusions. Because they held all these variables out there. They took real-life examples rather than computerized or model examples. However, it turned out that what was eaten was far more important in terms of environmental impacts than where and how it was produced. That was kind of a a revelation of sorts. The researchers said for diets enabling global fruit production to be sustainable, people in rich nations would need to radically reduce meat and dairy consumption. This is very doable. These are things that are within our power to do. Right. We're talking about global climate change, all these things. We're capable of changing our diet. Right. You're going to say, well, talk to George Rosales about it. Okay, the barbecue guy. Yeah, I know. The barbecue guy. You you turn him around. Yeah. 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 Then I'll I'll jump on your bandwagon. Well, again, and this is this argument. Sorry, George. Just bringing it up. You're a good example. Yeah. Yeah. I like you. I like him a lot. Yeah. George had a hat. So you're going to have to uh, convince Okay. Wonderful folk like George that he's wrong. He's a terrific human being. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more, but I, this is kind of, it feels like the same argument about fossil fuel as opposed to renewables in that they tend to center their argument on one specific thing when you really need to kind of pull back and look at the big picture. And for fossil fuel, it's exploration, it's drilling, it's moving it around, it's refining it. It's not just in your car and how much pollution it causes. It's all the ancillary kinds of things. And same with food. Getting that cow butchered, fed, butchered, and to market is extremely detrimental to the environment. When we're talking about using less water, it doesn't mean you drink less water. It means that we're not pouring water on alfalfa being grown in Arizona to feed the cow that we slaughter. Yes. That's the water we're talking about. And that's what needs to change. The researchers said other ways of reducing the environmental impact of the food system, like new technology and cutting food waste, would not be enough to make a difference. Mm -mm. The biggest difference seen in the study was for emissions of methane. Yes. A potent greenhouse gas produced by cattle and sheep, which were 93% lower for vegan diets compared with high meat diets. I'm trying to think in my diet what is creating methane i do eat cheese so i guess there is some shame on you yeah i know well you know it's not all or nothing yes exactly right exactly just cut down yeah 
Cut it down. Yeah. We'll have to radically change, but radically isn't really that much. It really isn't. <laughs> yeah. Have a burger once a week, okay? Yeah, exactly. And make it a nice one. Don't just buy it from McDonald's. Don't buy it from a massive food operation, which has bought all kinds of property all around the world to decimate it with their farming practices. Don't do that. <laughs> if you'd like to support commercial-free radio and beholden to big meat, may I recommend a donation to KUCI? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial-free, free-form, free-speech radio, KUCI 88.9 FM. From Grist magazine, studies have shown that several tick-borne illnesses are becoming more prevalent because of Wait climate change. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Ticks. Yeah, to me, right now, the huge news, what's happening in the world right now, Climate change. Yes. Or what do we call it? Global warming. But, you know, the yeah. crazy folks didn't like that one. No. So we, we Made had, them uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the whole world isn't warm enough. Look, I got we a snowball. Still, They're skiing still... in Mammoth in August. Yeah, I know. No, I know. that's why we said global. No. But okay. No. For okay. you, climate change. <laughs> anyway, tick-borne illnesses are becoming more prevalent because of climate change. Public health officials are particularly concerned about tick born encephalitis or swelling of the brain oh this is not good no which is deadlier than more well-known tick diseases like lyme disease due to the way it has quickly jumped from country to country as the world heats up and from smithsonian magazine according to a new paper published this month in the journal nature despite its waters being the clearest they've been in 40 years lake tahoe is brimming with microplastics Yes. Yeah. The Alpine Lake, which straddles the border between Nevada and California, contains the third highest amount of microplastics among 38 freshwater reservoirs and lakes around the globe. Lake Tahoe is so full of microplastics that their concentration in its waters, 5.4 plastic particles per cubic meter, is greater than the concentrations measured near some of the huge garbage patches swirling in the world's oceans. Wow. I assume because it has nowhere to go, right? Is that why? Exactly. We'll get into it here. Lake Tahoe may be particularly susceptible to microplastic accumulation because of its popularity among humans. Yes. You've heard that. I've heard about humans. Yeah, they're the large-scale surface, high elevation, and lack of outflows is another thing. Yeah. The only way for water to leave Lake Tahoe are through uh, Upper Truckee River and evaporation. It's only got one out or up which means the average water molecule spends roughly 650 years in the lake. Yeah. Okay. I used to live up in that area, and nobody likes to go through Truckee. It's an armpit. So I can see why the water wouldn't want to go through there. <laughs> is that what it does? Yeah, it's yeah. It's kind of a snobbish thing with the water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Especially if you've lived in Lake Tahoe. You're not going to go to Truckee. Well, if you live in Truckee, you sure as hell ain't going to go to Lake Tahoe. <laughs> In addition, Lake Tahoe has 72 miles of shoreline and a surface area that spans a massive 200 square miles, which means microplastics floating in the atmosphere get lots of space to land in. 
It's not uh, entirely clear where the microplastics come from or how they end up in the lake, but many of the microplastic particles found in Lake Tahoe were blue, the same color as ropes used to moor boats. Yeah. Because they're plastic. Yeah. Some of the microplastic particles likely came from the synthetic clothing worn by tourists and washed and dried at nearby homes and vacation rentals. And many come from just litter and debris. So yeah. it's the usual suspects. Usual suspects. Only two other lakes analyzed in the study had higher concentrations of microplastics. That's Lake Maggiore and Lake Lugano, which are located next to each other along the border of Italy and Switzerland. I got a story about water and the impact uh, that human beings are having on it. Do you remember about a week or so ago, we talked about this when uh, they were measuring the water temperature in Florida, the tip of Florida. They've confirmed now, there's this, there's this uh, article confirming that water temperatures reached 101.1 degrees Fahrenheit, and they're saying that the impact is already having on Florida beaches, coral bleaching, and even the death of some corals is what they're seeing now in South Florida, Florida Keys, and also this temperature change or this this rise in, in hot water in Florida will fuel hurricanes that are going to start occurring in September mm-hmm. and October. We're talking about the ocean here. Yeah, yeah we're, to be I'm 101 sorry. degrees 101 Fahrenheit. Degrees. And uh, the bleaching is already being yeah, it's taken underway. care of the coral there. Uh, and now a subject near and dear to Mahler's heart, toilet water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he, he likes that. No, yeah, yeah, he, he can't He's walk. He's kind of embarrassed by well, it. He is. Yeah. We're all a little embarrassed by it. But he, uh, he can't walk by one without at least sniffing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. It's it's From reasons to be cheerful, Oceanside, California made history as the first wastewater facility with advanced oxidation technology. The advanced oxidation system uses UV light and chlorine to neutralize any trace substances left in the water. 200 cities, including nearby San Diego, are building similar facilities. Also right here in Orange County, Fountain Valley's groundwater replenishment system, the world's largest wastewater recycling facility for indirect potable use, just went into use this April after a $500 million expansion. Good. So we're uh, kicking it here in Orange County. Yeah. It cleans 130 million gallons of black water. That's a technical term for wastewater for toilets. And also the name of Eric Prince's company, <laughs> the war profiteer and younger brother of disgraced ex-secretary of education, Bestie DeVos. <laughs> but I digress. Blackwater provides up to 130 million gallons of high-quality drinking water for up to 1 million residents daily yeah. in Fountain Valley, if you've been to Disneyland recently, you've already drunk purified wastewater. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, Mahler's a little bit jealous yeah. right yeah. there. How much did that facility cost? You mentioned the cost. The, well, they, they did an upgrade of oh. uh, $500, million. 500 in, in, million. That's Fountain Valley, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. This is the thing, and we talked about a little bit before, and I, I'm gonna, this is going to be my new thing to harp on. Okay. How much money can be made in infrastructure improvements for people who want to just make money? Right. And well, you how, have to retool. Yeah, that's the problem. And that's and, that's going to cost. That's that's going to be an expense. The decline of yeah. civilization when they don't retool. Yeah, exactly. So, and, but it is it's it's a pain. People don't like to change. No, I understand. But for people who want to make a lot of money, investing in 
structural changes that are going to be necessary in the face of climate change are going to be enormously profitable. We're, we're talking about civilization changing uh-huh. waterways. In the meantime, there's a lot of... Yeah, greed and corruption going on. No, I think, no. Well, don't, don't okay. put in my word. There's a lot of work that needs to be done, and people are basically uh, lazy. Yeah. And they don't like the change. And there will be some people who aren't successful at doing this, too. Yeah. Right now, you get into oil, and you're pretty much assured well, a profit. Yeah. You get into some technologies that are new right now, and you're not. Yeah. That's not, I'm not trying no, to no, disparage no, it, no, no, but I'm but just saying where government it, matters. you can't be pie in the sky about it. It's right. not like, oh, just step in, and you will automatically make money. Right. No. Probably about 50 or 60 years from now, the economy will be geared so that you will make a fair amount of money. But in the transition is going to be rough. This is where government matters. Yeah. Government steps in, subsidizes things that aren't profitable now, privatizing the profit for the people who come in later on to make money. But this is the socialization cost of the change that we need to have. Well, in apparently, order to, in yeah. purified water, yeah. we're doing yeah, it. Yeah, that's a, There you go. And by purified water, I mean turning water from dishwashers, showers, and toilets into uh, drinking water, yep. potable water. Yep. Or as we like to say on Weekly Signals, toilet to tap. <laughs> toilet to tap. <laughs> Dog humor aside, the pivot to reusing wastewater is badly needed. Potable water is an increasingly precious resource. Worldwide, already 26% of the global population, or 2 billion people, live in water-stressed areas, according to UN Water, which projects this figure could double by 2050. 4 billion people. You'll like hating this one, Mike. Okay. (laughs) From Live Science. A study projects that the Gulf Stream system could collapse as soon as 2025. Oh, my God. The shutting down of the vital ocean currents called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation by scientists would bring catastrophic climate impacts. The Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation was already known to be at its weakest in 1600 years because of the climate crisis. Researchers spotted warning signs of a tipping point in 2021. Mm-hmm. The new analysis estimates a time scale for a collapse between 2025 and 2095. So there's a big <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a big jump there. Yeah, uh, with a central estimate at 2050. They just rounded it off. If global carbon emissions are not reduced, yeah. Some scientists say the assumptions about how a tipping point would play out and uncertainties in the underlying data are too large for a reliable estimate. Yeah. yeah. And I think 2025 is a, yeah. a bit too soon, but it's, it's not something that just one day flips on. No. You're going to see gradual changes in the currents yeah. in the Atlantic. Uh, but all the scientists said the prospect of an Atlantic meridional overturning circulation collapse was extremely concerning and should spur rapid cuts in carbon emissions. The Atlantic meridional overturning circulation <laughs> carries warm ocean water northwards towards the pole where it cools and sinks, driving the Atlantic's currents. But an influx of fresh water from the melting of Greenland's ice cap and the Arctic is increasingly smothering the currents. And this is a gradual process. Mm-hmm. It's not going to all melt at once, but it's getting pretty close to it. Yeah. It's melting quickly there in uh, Wasn't in it last week we talked about 200 million meters or some? Yeah. yeah it was some, a lot of... Yeah, it's that the melting is causing more yeah. melting, yeah. Yeah. more than they expected. 
The collapse of the Atlantic Meridian overturning circulation would have disastrous consequences around the world, severely disrupting the rains that billions of people depend on for food in India, South America, and West Africa. It would increase storms and drop temperatures in Europe and lead to a rising sea level on the eastern coast of North America. It would also further endanger the Amazon rainforest and Antarctic ice sheets. Yeah. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us on the web at KUCI.org, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9, on our Tumblr blog at KUCIRadio.tumblr.com, and on Twitter and Instagram at KUCIFM. From the New York Times... In Quebec, more land was torched in June than in the previous 20 years combined. With a single out-of-control complex, it's uh, two or more fires going together, growing to 2.5 million acres. That's one group of fires. Across Canada, the total was more than 25 million acres, or about two and a half times as much land as burned in any of the worst American seasons of the past 50 years. Most of Canada's fire season is still ahead, putting the country on a track to produce more carbon emissions from the burning of forest than all of its human and industrial activities combined. With the climate crisis, the nature of fire itself is changing. The most powerful firefighting equipment that humans have, the Canada airplanes that cost roughly 35 million each and can scoop up 1,600 gallons of water from nearby water resources, Mix it with a chemical phone if desired and then drop it on a fire without having to return to a base to refill its tanks. Those can extinguish fires with an intensity of up to 10,000 kilowatts per meter of fire line. Today's climate crisis megafires are a different order of magnitude, sometimes exceeding 100,000 kilowatts per meter, 10 times as intense which means that water dumped on these fires from above can evaporate before it even reaches the ground. Oh, my God. This is not a surprise. Was it last winter or the winter before? I believe we were talking about the Arctic being on fire, right? Basically, Alaska, the the Arctic Circle was on fire. Mm -hmm. Before that, it was the permafrost area around Siberia was on fire. This is happening in places that we couldn't have imagined that you would have fires of this intensity and for this long just a few years ago. Hey, do you ever have out-of-body experiences? Every time I walk into KUCI. Really? Yeah. From Neuroscience News, out-of-body experiences occur in an estimated 5 to 10% of the population. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So you're unique. <laughs> An out-of-body experience can happen when you're going under anesthesia for Mm. surgery Mm -hmm. or have a near-death experience or wake up at night temporarily unable to move or speak. That's called sleep paralysis. Okay. Okay. Now researchers have identified a brain region that can create sensations of weightlessness or falling, and it could help develop new forms of anesthesia. So they think they found the part of the brain that creates out-of-body experiences. That region, called the anterior precuneus, is likely the seat of a person's physical sense of self or the idea that experiences are happening to you, not to someone else. 
Disrupting this network in your brain could shift your point of view, making your place in the world seem unreal. Wow. This could mean potential treatments for people with trauma-related mental health problems oh. that cause feelings of dissociation. That. The sausage-looking piece of brain, that's what it is, yeah. the uh, anterior precuneus. A sausage-looking piece of brain, which I see Mahler's licking his chops over there, <laughs> might also act as a substitute for anesthetic drugs during mis medical procedures in the future. Yeah. Most drugs for general anesthesia travel through the whole body and brain and carry some risks since they slow heart rate and breathing. But by sending electric impulses to the anterior precuneus, scientists might design new methods for anesthesia with fewer side effects. Mm. And it might just be fun. Mm -hmm. Would you sure. sign up for that? Yeah. Yeah. Sure, I'd sign up for that right yeah. now. You know, yeah. You, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I want to be experimented on, but if it was safe and all, I'd want to uh, get the old out of body going. Yeah. I used to uh, get sleep paralysis when I was a kid. I can't remember any recent sleep paralysis. But you would be awake, yeah. but unable to speak or move. And I interpreted it as part of a dream. Mm. Thus, the out of body yeah. thing going on. Things were happening around me, there was nothing I could do about them. I, I've never had that experience that I can recall. I have had, walking in the door at KUC, I had a near-death experience before. Really? Yeah. Is that when Jake Bacon was here? <laughs> it was when Jake and Mike were here. Yeah. They, yeah. That's what I had. I came close to a near-death experience. Yeah. Well, the... <laughs> they were lively, weren't they? A lively duo. From the Atlantic, if power... Were a prescription drug, it would come with a long list of known side effects. It can intoxicate power. Yes. It can corrupt. It can even make Mahler and Henry Kissinger believe they're sexually magnetic. <laughs> but a bing. But after years of lab and field experiments, Dr. Keltner, a psychology professor at UC Berkeley, believes that power causes a disease that ends by killing the victim's sympathies. It's called hubris syndrome. A disorder of the possession of power, particularly power which has been associated with overwhelming success, held for a period of years, and with minimal constraint on the person who has the disease. Or in other words, the person with the power. Subjects with hubris syndrome, Keltner found, acted as if they had suffered a traumatic brain inju injury. Kind of reminds me of Elon Musk. Yeah. Becoming more impulsive, less risk-aware, and crucially less adept at seeing things from other people's point of view. Yeah. Sikvinder Obi is a neuroscientist at McMaster University in Ontario, recently described something similar. Unlike Dr. Keltner, who be, uh, studies behaviors, Obi studies brains. And when Obi put the heads of the powerful and not-so-powerful under a transcranial magnetic stimulation machine, he found that power, in fact, impairs a specific neural process called mirroring that may be a cornerstone of empathy. Hmm. This gives a neurological basis to what Keltner turned the power paradox. And that is, once we have power, we lose some of the capacities we needed to gain it in the first place. Right. Yeah. No. yeah, it is a disease. It is. His experiments suggest that by recounting a time when you did not feel powerful, your brain can commune with reality. So recalling earlier experiences of powerlessness seems to help some people with hubris syndrome. And experiences that were searing enough may provide a sort of permanent protection. So if you had a trauma at some point, you're, you're not likely to have hubris syndrome or have a 
even if you become powerful. Power is not a position but a mental state that can lead to hubris syndrome, a disease. Its 14 clinical features include manifest contempt for others, loss of contact with reality, restless or reckless actions, and displays of incompetence. This sounds like very interesting research and yeah, and so too. A, a new kind of yeah a new way to explain the lunacy of so many people that we are the victims of well it seems like it's it's spreading rapidly in silicon valley yeah. and parts of washington dc yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but if you combine that with the the story we just read about the the anterior pecunius yeah or the the uh, sausage yeah, the sausage, the out-of-body experience. Yeah. That makes me wonder if uh, power has an adverse effect on the anterior precunius and disrupts our ability for mirroring because of the anterior precunius uh, gives us the power of mirroring. Yeah, empathy. Yeah. Understanding people. From Science <laughs> Daily, scientists for the first time witnessed pieces of metal crack, then fused back together without any human intervention, overturning fundamental scientific theories in the process. It's a self-healing metal. It was only happened on the nanoscale, though, but okay. they saw this. Right. If the newly discovered self-healing metal phenomena can be harnessed, it could usher in an engineering revolution where self-healing engines, bridges, and airplanes could reverse damage caused by wear and tear, making them safer and longer-lasting. Now... That's taking things way off into yeah. possibilities. Yeah. It happened on a very, very, very small scale. This was absolutely stunning to watch firsthand, said materials scientist Brad Boyce. What we have confirmed is that metals have their own intrinsic natural ability to heal themselves, at least in the case of fatigue damage at the nanoscale. That's amazing. Yeah. The Fisher Boyce and his team saw disappear was a microfracture measured in nanometers, a lot remains unknown about the self-healing process, including whether it will become a practical tool in manufacturing. Yet for all the unknowns, the discovery remains a leap forward at the frontier of material science. That's interesting. Really interesting. Yeah, it just makes me wonder if <laughs> maybe their data isn't right. I don't know. Yeah, they, I it don't seems know. like it is. And yeah, it all, yeah, yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't it's think not they... just one source that I got that was on the deep web and it had a cue <laughs> next to it. No, this was, this was... was Pepe the Frog involved in it at all uh, somehow? What was that movie? I'm tr oh, The Terminator. Remember yeah. the, t oh, the yeah. second one? Well, yeah. yeah. In it fact, was, it's funny. Yeah. One of the photos they used to yeah. lead into the story of course they did. was the Terminator. Yeah, and the, yeah. Uh, yeah. I forget his name. The one who has had his arm cut off. Yeah, and then it suddenly and heals right yeah, up again. Yeah, just kind of. Yeah. 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 Whoa. Yeah, Mother, I see you. <laughs> Guess he's getting bored with all of this. <laughs> From the Hill, lawmakers pushed the federal government to reveal more information on unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs or UFOs. We used to call them UFOs. We used to. I mean, they're unidentified flying objects. I guess uh, what do they unidentified call them aerial phenomena. Aerial phenomena. Okay. A All flying right. object, an aerial a phenomena. Okay. okay. Right. I don't know what the huff was about. I like the idea of a UFO. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue more than that a U is not U an easy UAP. thing to say that yeah uap yeah okay UAP. so three former military officials testified during a congressional hearing the house oversight committee on national security the border and foreign affairs heard testimony from three witnesses david grush 
a former U.S. intelligence officer, David Fravor, a former Navy commander, and Ryan Graves, a former Navy pilot. Graves, the pilot, and Fravor, the intelligence officer, both claimed to have spotted UAPs. Grush said, he's the uh, intelligence officer, said he has not personally seen UAPs, but claimed he was informed of a multi-decade government UAP retrieval program. Lawmakers and witnesses at the roughly two-hour-long hearing decried the stigma surrounding UFO reporting. Well, it's not just reporting. It's Hollywood and everything. And the idea lets your imagination run free. And, of course, you're going to have silly results. Yes. Aliens and all that. E.T. phone home. E.T. Yeah. phone home. Yeah. 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 That's anyway, silly. They also repeatedly underscored the importance of what they called a bipartisan issue. The lawmakers there. Of course, course they, they did. did. Yeah. <laughs> because neither one of the sides wants to be thought of as crazy. So yeah, yeah. we're all crazy or we're not all crazy. One mm. of the two. What is it? Some lawmakers and witnesses also accused the federal government of withholding key UFO related information from the public. Of course they did. Graves told the panel that the UAP sightings among commercial and military pilots are both routine, and grossly underreported because of the stigma. And that's what he's talking about, stigma. When I tell people I've seen a UFO, that's what I saw. I saw something that nobody could identify. Yeah. What am I going to do about it? You yeah. know, Tell you and have you make fun of me. Yeah. Okay, yeah. sounds like fun. He added, Graves did, that if the public viewed the video and censored data he witnessed, our national conversation would change. I'm sure it would. I don't know if it would change for the better, and that's my problem. But he said, I urge, this is the, uh, the former Navy pilot, I urge us to put aside stigma and address the security and safety issue this topic represents. The American people deserve to know what is happening in our skies. It is long overdue. I would agree with him completely if half the American people had a brain, even half a brain, it would work. But uh, half of the country can't handle Barbie, let alone the historical fact of slavery. Yeah. So what? We're going we're gonna to say, oh, yeah, and there yeah. are extraterrestrials flying around. Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine what this would do to the state of Tennessee? There are some people that don't react in uh, any other way but fear and hostility to things they don't understand. Yeah. And that's what I'm afraid would happen. That's why... If they are keeping something under wraps, that might be the logic behind it. You went where I was going to go. Okay. And that is when I was a kid, a little scrapper, and the idea of UFOs was introduced into my little world. It was framed in such a way that if, in fact, we were able to prove that there is life, intelligent life outside of what we know is our universe, our, our solar system, that it would be so transformative for human beings that they would react in such a way as to stop waging war with one another, understanding there's a greater intelligence. I used to think that was a valid point of view. I used to think, yes, we would all realize, oh my God, we're just these little tiny beings on this little tiny planet in the middle of a huge solar system or universe, and we should change the way we behave. I don't think that's true anymore. Yeah. I think to your point, I don't think that we as human beings would react in the way that I just described. I think you're right. You know, I'd give Fox News something to talk about. Oh, my then. God. It'd be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From American Atheists magazine, 
A federal judge in West Virginia ruled that the state corrections agency cannot force incarcerated atheists to participate in religious-affiliated programming in order to be eligible for parole. I think this is an important story. It kind of slipped in. Joseph Goodwin, a Charleston Board U.S. District Court judge, said that St. Mary's Correctional Center inmate Andrew Miller easily meets his threshold burden of showing an impingement on his rights. Miller filed suit in April alleging the state forced Christianity on incarcerated people and failed to accommodate repeated requests to honor his lack of belief in God. Miller is serving a one to ten year sentence for breaking and entering. Substance use was not a factor in his offense, but Miller was put in the program because he is in recovery from addiction. He alleged the federal-funded substance abuse treatment program, a requirement for his parole consideration, was infused with Christian practices. Multiple courts have determined that step-based programs like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are religious-based because they are predicated on the existence of a higher power or a god. In the big book, the fundamental document of these programs, Chapter 4, We Agnostics, tells atheists and agnostics that they are doomed to alcoholic death. Oh, my God. Unless they seek him, capital H. The chapter characterizes nonbelievers as handicapped by obstinacy, sensitiveness, and unreasoning prejudice. We're handicapped by sensitiveness. Judge Goodwin ruled that programs that contain such substantial religious components that governmentally compel participation violate the First Amendment. And I agree. And I'm hoping there are more lawsuits that are in this realm, the realm of I don't happen to believe in this version of religion, and, and it's an impingement on my civil rights. From HuffPost, Los Angeles has a newly discovered species named in its honor. Who's that? Los Angeles Thread Millipede. Thread millipede. Thread millipede. About the length of a paper clip, but skinny as pencil lead. It's translucent and sinuous like wow. a jellyfish tentacle. Wow. The creature burrows four inches below ground, secretes unusual chemicals. I tried to find out what those chemicals were, but everywhere I looked, it just says unusual. So I don't know. Secretes unusual chemicals and is blind, relying on horn-like antennas protruding from its head to find its way. Wow. The tiny anthropod was first spotted in April 2018 at Whiting Ranch Wilderness Park near Lake Forest. Yeah. Right here. Right here. There were further sightings of the animal at Eaton Canyon Natural Area in Pasadena. Huh. But instead of honoring Orange County or Pasadena, the naming team, whoever their names are, Named it Los Angeles Thread Millipede. Those bastards. I know. I just, I'm going to start a protest. <laughs> yeah. Huh, I want a website. I want, <laughs> I want action. Cool. Wow. This, what, what, what kind about of a, the Lake Forest Thread Millipede, for yeah, God's yeah, sake? Yeah, for God's sake. And, and by the way, uh, I want to know about these chemicals. I mean. <laughs> Unusual chemicals. Well, that's, well maybe that's why it's blind. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so. And finally, oh, wow. from the Surrey Now Leader. For nearly a year, Rashnish and Harpreet Dewan have complained to officials from Chilliwack, a city in British Columbia, to no avail about high decibel noises from three pickleball courts that are about 20 feet behind their property. In 2017, when the Dewans bought the home, there was no pickleball court, and they considered it a plus to hear the sounds of the park. But since pickleball play began in 2021, the Dewans say they have endured auditory hallucinations, heart flutters, and insomnia. You feel as if someone is 
constantly punching your head, he said. (laughs) It's literally like living next to a gun range. So after a year of pickleball, they are protesting the city's inaction by going on a hunger strike. As staunch followers of Mahatma Gandhi, we have decided to follow the path shown by him to deal with systemic injustice, Rajneet wrote in a letter. We prefer death over continuing to live the life of second-class citizens that we have been reduced to due to the callous and discriminatory attitude of the city. You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.